imagine a day where people will not understand the title of this interview that's coming up. I imagine a day where the reference to masks will go back to being Halloween. But that's not today. And there are two conversations that go on in my head now when I see the word mask. Actually, there are three. To explore all three of these conversations and peel back so that we can have honest communication with our kids, help me welcome into the studio, Dr. Cheryl Bryan-Bruce. All right, Dr. Cheryl, let's see if you've got the power. You have magic that you can turn on your kid. There you are, look at you. Hello, Jackie. So pleased to be here with you. This is such an important conversation. Well, I absolutely love the fact that you're here, you know, um, and the beauty of our conversation is going to get mirrored by first, we're going to just name the elephant in the room. Zoom decided to zoom out on you. I don't know if you noticed. I see that and I can't, I don't know why it did that. Zoom has been doing some really interesting things. So that's why I have Katie running everything in the background for me. Um, but yeah, so the, the, the beauty is for me, I just, I love your studio setup. I mean, I've got screen color envy at the moment. That is a beautiful <laughs> color. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, all right, Dr. Cheryl, is it okay for me to call you that? Absolutely. Okay. Um, this idea of having honest communication, requiring removing masks. Where did that come from? Well, that actually, it stemmed out of my own childhood. Uh, there were three separate occasions that, that really impacted me. Two of them were, were friends. In my, I was very young in my sophomore year. I went as an interpreter to Mexico for a, a, a group of Spanish students or Spanish speaking students. Upon our return, while we were over there, one of the young ladies had met a, a man, a much older man, and had struck up a relationship with him, even though she was only a high schooler. Upon our return, she found out that she was pregnant and she contacted the man of course, he was married and he rejected her. I remember very clearly the day she reached out to me in tears, speaking with her, trying to console her. And then she put on a stiff upper lip and it was all good. I was the last one that spoke to her. I found out that afternoon that she had committed suicide. Subsequently, another good friend of mine who was having a very troubled childhood, uh, home life was, was very unsupportive. Because I had had the, the conversation with the prior friend, when she started to talk about feelings of worthlessness and such, I recognized it. And I got into my little Volkswagen bug and as quickly as I could get over there without breaking the law on my 16 year old license, 
I went over to her home. She didn't answer the door. So I went around to the back to see if the back door was open. And that was when I saw her floating in the pool. She had walked down in the pool and she too was making an attempt. Fortunately, it had a much better outcome. I was able to pull her, her out and she survived it. And um, we cried on the side of the pool together. Then not too long after that, because I too came from a difficult home life, a, a home life where my parents fought quite frequently. It was a very loving home, but my parents fought quite frequently. My mom was OCD without medication. And it was just very difficult because my dad was very easygoing. And when she couldn't get a rise out of my dad, she would take that out on me. And I always ended up being the peacemaker. Everybody on the outside saw this gregarious person with a happy face and they had no idea what was going on in my home life. It was a mask and the mask was so effective that even my family didn't recognize fully the pain I was in. And I was in my mother's bathroom downing pills with an intent of ending my life. Not a cry for help, but a desire to escape all of the pain. And my, my, my little brother came in and he saw what I was doing and he wrapped himself around my legs and started crying. Please, please don't do this. You're the most important person in my life. I love you, Tissy. I love you. Don't do this. You can't die. And at that point, I recognized the pain that I would cause all of the people around me. And I recognized that my life was valuable, that my life did have meaning, that this was not something that I wanted to do. And I thought back to my friend, Dana, who had reached out because she was making that last final reach for help before she decided that she couldn't do it anymore. And so that was when I really became intent on helping people understand that we all live with pain and we all live with mask that we hide behind. From the day we're born, we put on a mask. How effective we are at existing in life depends on how effective we are at using those masks. Little babies put on a, a cute, mommy, don't you love me mask. And we immediately engage and wanna care for and wanna love those children. Then you have other children like children with autism who aren't capable of putting those masks on. And there's a disconnect between the parent and the child. And we learn to use masks in different ways and we put masks on for other people, but we also 
put masks on for ourselves. And sometimes we can't even recognize the pain behind the mask. You know, it's really interesting. Um, when Billy Joel did his song about the mask, you know, the, the stranger behind the mask, it hadn't dawned on me this concept that we really does start when we're babies. And so having, um, having family that are on the autism spectrum, this idea that they can't put on a mask. And I think that that makes it where we are very uncomfortable around them because we don't know how to interact with people without our masks. You know, when we talk about everybody wanting to be authentic, if you want to be authentic, you look at the people who have autism. They can't be anything but authentic. And we run from them as a society and try to fix them. In the same time, we're trying to be that. Exactly. I think there's a little bit of a definition of insanity that we could pull out of this. Exactly. And the thing is, we are all taught to be politically correct. And being politically correct is putting on that mask. And if you want to get rejected quickly, be too authentic, be too <laughs> honest, say what you're thinking, say what you mean. And very quickly, people are pushing back. They think you're being cruel. Uh, they think you're being opinionated. They think you're being all sorts of things that usually aren't affirmations. <laughs> oh, that's such a delicate way of putting it. Yeah, other people's judgments absolutely ruled my life for a very, very, very long time. And I'm still aware of how much they influence me. And I hadn't quite got how firmly um, entrenched in the habit of putting on a mask I've been and I still am. So there's two sides of this. I mean, there's a social value in being able to have a mask. Yes, there is. So let's go to both sides of this equation. What's so good about having a mask? Well, one of the things that is good about having a mask is that it does allow you to a certain degree to protect other people's uh, feelings. And even if it's somebody you, who you absolutely can't stand or you absolutely reject their opinion, it allows you to appear empathetic. And that is politically correct. Whoa, big so, statement. It allows you to appear empathetic. Absolutely. I'd say it's probably a, a pretty reasonable uh, guesstimate to say 90% of the time that we're dealing with other people, something that they're saying or something about them is incongruent with our own belief and value system. If we were completely authentic, we would react to that and we would reject that in them. They are also sensitive 
and they have feelings and values and, and beliefs too. So when we reject whatever it is that we're hearing, they sense it as a rejection of them. So instead we mirror back what they're giving to us. And that can be a very dangerous thing. The other side of that, however, is that we put on masks to protect ourselves. And so if we're having feelings that we feel may be unacceptable to somebody else, then we may put on the happy face. That's what we're told to do. Suck it up, put on the happy face and give that person what they want to see. Not who you are, but what they want to see. And the people who are the most effective in life are the ones who are the best at giving other people what they want to see. Okay, so there, there, there's so much in there that we can unpack. My brain is going, I can't write notes fast enough because I didn't <laughs> want to take my eyes off of you. Um, all right, so let's, I'm going to name an elephant in the room. Yes. Dick Van Dyke in Bye Bye Birdie. The most famous, happiest song from that movie, I think creates the most damage on this topic because the song was, Put on a happy face. Yes. Put on a smile and cheer up. La da 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 da. Yes. It's a very upbeat, very happy song. And yet it's teaching people to meet other people's expectations rather than allow for their feelings to actually be expressed authentically. Mm hmm. So I'm like going, oh my God, my library in my head, I was, I raised my kids on the classics, you know, all of these musicals. And so I'm going to be able to come up with probably a whole library now. Yeah, um, long smile. You know? <laughs> smile though your heart is breaking. Yeah. We, I mean, smile even through the sadness. I mean, it's just, mm -hmm. it, it's intrinsic in our oh. society. As a matter of fact, if you drop that mask, if you allow people to see your pain, half the time they're going to reject you straight out of the gate because they don't want to deal with your pain because that uh, engages- They get uncomfortable with your discomfort. Yes, yes. It brings them too close to their own realities, too close to their own feelings that they have masked for themselves. That all that tendency, I'm just going to interrupt because that tendency almost bankrupted my company. Mm -hmm. I was, I had survived two bouts of clinical depression and I was so afraid of falling back into that black abyss, which is how I experienced it, that I would not talk with my family if they were down. Now that did some damage to my family relationships, but I also wouldn't work with a client who was dealing with depression. Understood. Dr. Cheryl, I was a stress management consultant. This was not good for my business. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. And I didn't connect the dots until you just said that. And I'm like, holy crap, this is exactly what it is. I was so uncomfortable with their discomfort. Yes. So. Yes. Yes. I mean, and, and I mean, it's, it's common in our society. Uh, a great example is cancer patients. Mm -hmm. I have leukemia 
and like many, many cancer patients for months, as long as I could, I avoided telling people. The reason that I avoided telling people was one, I didn't want to see the pitying eyes because you get, you get three things. You get the pitying eyes, you get the people who want to give you all sorts of outlandish cures for your cancer, and you get the people who just flat out reject you like you have the plague, like the cancer is contagious. Cancer's contagious, depression's contagious, suicide is contagious. These are things we push away from because we're afraid of the feelings that we harbor inside that might connect. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, we're afraid of the feelings that might connect and the feelings are uncomfortable. Yes. And the sad part of it is that we even do it as parents. We put on masks for our kids that protect our kids from the pain, the fear, all of the emotions that we have inside so we can appear perfect to our kids. But we also put masks on our kids. We teach them to wear certain masks so that we don't necessarily have to connect with the feelings that they maybe have because we may be too engaged in our own feelings. We may be afraid of having the honest communications with them. We may be afraid of seeing their pain because as our children, they are extensions of us and if they are in pain as parents. It almost hurts us worse. And we don't want to hurt. Well, we don't want to feel that pain. Absolutely. We don't. We do. We are very pain avoidant as a species. And yes. It served us well. It's what allowed our ancestors to survive. Yes. And, and there's, the, there's the pain of seeing your child suffer, but there's another pain that people just aren't cognizant of. We feel responsible for our children, everything about our children. And if our child is in that kind of pain, we feel guilt that somehow we've failed and therefore it's easier for us to just not see it and hope it goes away. Well, of course, now you're telling my story. I mean, this is exactly what my story was for over 23 years. Mm -hmm. And the guilt nightmare mm -hmm. that I have finally decided is the appropriate label for it. Yes. It drives my mission. The Teen Suicide Prevention Society is built on the desire to prevent any other parent, grandparent, kid, anybody from suffering into the, being sucked into the guilt nightmare. But the reality is we still have masks. You said something about honest communication with our children. And I, I think there's a, the, there's a deeper piece to the puzzle that I'd love to explore with you because I'm sure you're going to have insights that I'm clueless about because it just occurred to me that it would not have been possible for me to give my daughter an honest response growing up. I could not share with her how I honestly felt 
because I didn't know. Exactly. Exactly. And most people have become so entrenched in the mask that they put on, that they look in the mirror and that's what they see. And they have no clue who lies beneath it. Now, the funny thing about that is that the mask that they look at in the mirror is often not the mask that other people see. It's the mask that they wanted to project, but what they're projecting may not be what they think they're projecting. <laughs> and so other people get a, a different read on it and they respond in ways that we're not comfortable with because they shouldn't be the responses we're getting for what we think we're projecting. And this causes dis-ease, it causes stress and stress leads to illness, both physical and mental. So behind every child that is suicidal, behind every child that's in pain is a parent who's in just as much pain and can't even see it. All right, so now that we have taken parental guilt to a whole new level, um, let's peel back and give some hope and some help. Yes. yes. The, the, the real hope, the real gift here is recognizing that we have these masks. And for both parents and children to dig deep, to recognize that they are a part of the problem, but they are also part of the solution. And to recognize that the other person is most likely in just as much pain as we are, maybe a different type of pain, but just as much pain. And if we can take ourselves out of ourselves, if we can make ourselves vulnerable, even if we don't understand what our pain is, if we can say, you know, I'm a little lost here. I'm hurting and I need your help. And I think that you may be lost and hurting too. So can we talk about our pain? Can we cry together? And I will make a contract with you that I will listen because that's the biggest part of the problem with communication. A lot of blah, 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 and very little listening. Not just hearing, but listening, understanding the context of the words, the feeling behind the words, understanding the source of the other's pain. And a lot of times, if we can take ourselves out of ourselves, and step into the body of another person, step into the heart of another person, step into the soul 
of another person and embrace their pain, all of a sudden our pain actually becomes less because we are doing something that can help somebody else. And in so doing, we help ourselves. Funny how that works, right? When we're doing something that helps somebody else, it helps us. It does something. Well, we know it does something biochemically in the brain. Yes. When you do it, that's why the whole random act of kindness movement actually became a movement because doing something kind for someone else triggers our brain to help us feel good. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and then the other, the other thing that happens there when we have those conversations with our children, I remember having one when I was in college, I was going through my master's program and one of the uh, assignments was to go home and have those conversations with our parents because it doesn't matter. I mean, we all think, well, you know, ours is the worst situation ever. Everybody has a situation, even the ones with the most perfect parent-child relationships have some baggage. It's all part of the, the, the whole package. Every the child human is, experience. Yes, every child is different and no parent is going to get it all right and no child is going to get, get it all right. So you go and you have that conversation so with that other person and you wait, hold it hold it i'm gonna get you out of this impersonal language and i'm gonna say all right you left us cliffhanger here here's the cliffhanger i have an assignment to go and have yes. those conversations yes don't tell me about the generic tell me yes. about that day how did yes. that converse because i don't even know what those conversations are so what conversation were you going to have with your parents no, the conversation that we were going to have with our parents was we were going to identify um, either a painful experience or a painful collection of experiences that were due to interactions with our parents. In my case, it was an entire collection of experiences. And so I went home and I spoke with my mother and I said, you know, mom, did you realize that I was depressed? Did you realize that I was in pain? And she said, well, you were always such a happy child. And that was true to a certain extent because I'm, I'm an optimist by nature and my nature is to be happy, but I was in an oppressive situation carrying everybody else's baggage. So I couldn't be that happy child. And I suffered physically and I suffered emotionally for it. And I asked her again, could you not see this? I was in and out of the hospital with gastric trouble. I was in and out of the, the, the school counselor's uh, office because I at times would with, withdraw. And she said, the next thing she said to me was poignant and life-changing because it allowed me to have my self-esteem back. It allowed me to realize it, what was happening there wasn't about me. It was about her dealing with her pain. The next thing she said when I said, couldn't you see this? She said, yes, I could see it. 
but I couldn't stop myself. I couldn't help myself. She was in too much pain and she couldn't take off the mask and see her own pain and fix her own pain. So her response was to take all of that out on me to try and transfer that pain anywhere. And I happened to be the closest, easiest target of transfer. Had nothing to do with me. And all of a sudden my perspective of being unlovable, not good enough, not perfect enough, a, a, a screw up. I mean, I was a straight A student. I was, you know, track star, this, that, the other thing, but I was never good enough. My name, when I walked through that door was usually stupid. I mean, even up until I was well into my forties, stupid. And one day I confronted her on it. I was like, you did not give me the name stupid. So I am not that person that left the house. And today will be the last day that you call me stupid because stupid is one of those things I am not. And it took her back, but it was an honest communication with how I felt about that. And it checked her and it made her examine what she was doing and why she was doing it. And she apologized. My mother passed in 2016 and I spent a good portion of a year as her advocate. And during that time, a lot of healing occurred because the funny thing about being close to death is that a lot of masks fall off because now you're dealing with something that is raw and real and the need for the mask are no longer there. So as the mask fell off, we were able to have this rich, honest communication about who she was, what her pain was. And I was able to tell her about the pain that it caused me, about the choices I made in my life on her behalf, because I didn't want to disappoint her. I didn't want to fail her. I didn't want to be anything less than she believed me to be. But unless I was perfect for her in the past, I wasn't good enough because she wasn't good enough in her own eyes. So it's not possible that you could have ever achieved what you spent your life trying to achieve up until you started healing this. It's it, exactly. it's not possible because it wasn't your pain behind it. It was hers. Exactly. And exactly. it wasn't her pain behind that. It was her mom's or her exactly. dad. Exactly. And we see this perpetuating through families if they don't stop and okay. have those honest communications that are very, very hard. It is hard to be that vulnerable in front of your children. All right, we're going to make it easier for everybody because I refuse to allow this conversation to put more pressure on parents because 
I've been there and I yes. am not. And yes. the power of your ability to communicate this, I think you're underestimating. I don't think you give yourself enough credit to be able to make this simple and easy for parents. So let's change the language from how difficult it is to how simple and easy it could be if they do what? What's the first simple and easy step that will help a parent come out of the mask and into the honest communication? Well, I'm, 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 I actually, I'm going to stick on the difficult for one second because I am going to transition to the easy. And, uh, you know, again, it is difficult to confront your own feelings. It's easy to let it be about your child. You love your child. You want the best for your child. And if giving of yourself is the best for your child, it's easier to let yourself go. And by letting yourself go, you build your own self-esteem because you do want to be a good parent. But even more than that, what I want you to be is a good friend to yourself. So the easiest part is to look at that man in the mirror, that woman in the mirror, and say to yourself, is that really me? Is that who I really want to be, to figure out what your core values are. And I always encourage people when I'm having these conversations, it's like, get out a piece of paper and start writing everything that you value. And then circle the ones that are the most important to you. Stick those on the mirror and say, this is who I'm going to be. I am going to make my life congruent with my own values. And I am going to share that with my child. I am going to let my child know who I really am. And I'm going to encourage my child to be who they really are. And I'm going to suspend judgment. And I'm going to ask my child to suspend judgment. Okay. I'm going so. to listen to my child. I'm going to listen to my inner self. All right. So I'm going to unpack this for everybody. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. It is, it, is, it is completely overwhelming. So we're going to bring this down to my brain. Okay. <laughs> okay. So we're going to break this down into steps for people, if that's okay. Yes. Because your first step was write down the things I value. Yes. And the word value has more than one meaning in the dictionary. Mm -hmm. So can you be a little more specific about what it is that if we write it down, it will be valuable to us? What you are trying to do is to identify your core spirit, the essence of who you are, the essence of what 
really will give your life meaning? Okay. What will really give my life meaning? We are, we are in the realm of beautiful language and a lack of concreteness. So can you give a list of just three or four words that would be good examples of what someone might write down if they were writing, what I really value is? What I really value is my health. What I really value is love. What I really value is faith. What I really value is family. There are tons of things. It could be happiness. It could be money. It could be travel. I mean, there are some people who the most important thing in the world is to see the entire world and they will sacrifice just about anything for that. There are some people who would sacrifice anything for their family. Uh, I recently did this again for myself and my rank order um, started with health. And I'll tell you the reason that health was at the top of my list because without your health, it is hard to do much of anything else. And it kind of ran side by side with faith because even if your health is failing, faith in something, you know, whether you call it God, whether you call it your inner goddess, whatever it is, faith in something will help to carry you through even the difficult times. Faith in something will help you face yourself and your inner demons. And so, we all have them. Yeah, all right. Well, yeah, whether you call them inner demons or I call them inner saboteurs, the bottom line is we all have that, that voice in our head that yes. comes back up. But so yes. this was very, very helpful. Now, step two is to take the list of what I value and put it on the mirror and commit to living from that. Yes. So if I put on the mirror that I value health and I am living from that, the idea that I'm going to go out and binge on nachos is like, no, they don't align. Right. So the idea that I have travel on my value list and I don't have a current passport is out of alignment. Yes. So it would be a guidebook for making decisions on everything from what I eat to um, where I spend my money. And then, let me take that as an example. Um, we'll use travel because travel is a simple one. Um, you have spent your life dreaming of, of traveling, but whatever you, your reasons are, you haven't had the courage to pursue that dream. Now you have this child that dreams of, of traveling, one of the things that we do as human beings is because we haven't pursued that dream, we can do one of two things. Um, we can either encourage the other person to pursue it, or we can dissuade them from it. And a lot of us, because of our own pain, will dissuade the other person from it. 
I encourage parents and children too. I mean, teens, if you're out there listening, I encourage you too. If you are having a strong reaction to your parent or to your teen, examine your own thoughts behind that. Examine your own reason behind that. Why is your reaction so strong? What button's being punched? What is the trigger? Because a what lot of does time- this remind me of? Because <laughs> a lot of times you'll find that that trigger has not so much to do with them as it does to do with you. Something from our past. Yeah. Yes. We, exactly. we bring our past into our present and trip over it all the time. Exactly. Yeah. So look at, look at your teen and identify yourself in your teen or identify whatever it is in your past that that may be triggering. Because sometimes, um, sometimes it's something as simple as the way a child expresses themselves. Though, you know, I mean, my son was never around his father. And then all of a sudden at 13, he had his, this way of tossing his head back and winking. And I would see my ex in his, his face. And it was like, wow. And it would immediately trigger a reaction. Lucky for him, that reaction was a smile because I did love my ex-husband very much. And that particular thing that he did was very endearing. But just as easily, it could have been something that created pain or anxiety or anger. Mm -hmm. And I could have responded to him in a negative way, not based on anything about him, but about my recollection of something that somebody else did. So we have to identify what it is that we're responding to because the messages that we give to our children are very strong. And oftentimes when we give those messages to our children that are so strong, the child will respond by pushing back and a vicious cycle is going back and forth. And sometimes it's vice versa. Sometimes the message the child is giving is very strong because the child also can see things in the parent that they don't like in themselves. And they can accordingly react in just the same way to the parent. Now the poor parent is unsuspecting, not knowing why is this child rejecting me? Why I'm doing everything I can for my child. Why is my child treating me that way? And it has nothing to do with you as the parent, but something that the child is sensing in themselves that they don't like, that they see reflecting in you. So it's, it's important. That's probably one of the most important things that we can do is identify why are we triggering, you know, search ourselves. Why is this behavior triggering me? Yeah, it, it starts with just recognizing that I've been triggered rather yes. than I'm responding to what's happening in front of me. No, the reality is I'm reacting to an old meaning. Yes. But we're not always aware of that. And I no, think that this values exercise is actually going to really help people understand and become, not understand necessarily, but be more sensitive yes. to what's really going on here. You know, if mm-hmm. I say, and it's as simple as monitoring the behavior. 
You know, if I say I value family, but I haven't picked up the phone and called any of my siblings in the last six months, what's up with this? Yes. And, and starting to ask the sort of what's up with this question. That's yes. the, is my life congruent with what I believe in? Well, I- you know, it, obviously it's not. So it's like, okay, so you observe, observe that it's not incongruent. And so my next question is, you know, something. My thought was, what's up with this? What is the next question when I can see that it's out of congruence? When you can see that it's out of congruency, your next step is to recognize how and why it's not congruent and then to take one baby step. One baby step towards moving in the direction of where you want to be. Um, If I determine, well, my mother couldn't see me. She couldn't emotionally really connect with me. What would I have liked to have seen happen? Mommy, I need a hug. My one baby step could be to hug my children more. My one baby step could be to physically reach out to my child more often, even if it's just a light pat on the back, to create that physical, emotional connection that I didn't have. The value of identifying what's up with me is how can I make that experience different for my child? Yes. And the how comes out of this inquiry. And that is very, very powerful, Dr. Cheryl. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. You're welcome. I got a feeling we could probably keep talking for like maybe another six months. Um, (laughs) And and since, since we don't have that much time today, what I'd like to do is help people connect the dots between our conversation and the gift that you have created and are giving to them. So Katie's going to take care of giving the link to everyone and it'll be in the show notes for the people watching the recording. But tell us more about this, these mind hacks for motivated movement, because we've been talking about moving beliefs, but I've got a feeling you're talking about a different kind of movement in this gift. Actually, I I very much am. I'm talking about physical uh, movement and physical movement is, is very important. It's a very important component of, of making these communications work well, because behind these masks, we're dealing with all kinds of tumultuous feelings. And one of the things that happens when we're dealing with all of this junk in our head is it creates a physiological response in our body that causes our body to crank out toxic hormones. Oh, yeah, the stress cocktail. The stress cocktail. And one of the best things for clearing that stress cocktail out, for making us think more clearly, for making us able to begin to feel better, is to kick up endorphins. And those are the feel-good hormones. 
And one of the quickest ways of kicking up feel-good hormones, besides smiling, is to move your body. The more you move, the more blood you get flowing, it creates an automatic trigger in the brain to release endorphins. Even if we haven't moved in a long time and getting out and moving a lot is, is painful, those muscles are, are, are yelling back at us, still it creates this surge of endorphins in the body. And that helps us to overcome anxiety. It helps us to overcome depression. The other thing it helps us to do is to communicate because if we can get that surge of endorphins before we try to communicate with someone, we're in a much more open and receptive place to make that communication happen. So one of the tips that I do have for parents and children alike, um, if you're at an impasse, or if you feel like you need to deal with a heavy conversation, or if you're just, you know, you're, you're in the midst of a, a big fight, walk away. I need a timeout and take that time out and go move, you know, go run around the box. Your, your flight or flight has, has already kicked in and you've got the boxing gloves on. Well, take the opposite route go run it off, go kick up those endorphins and then come back in a more positive place, probably with a much different perspective to have that conversation. Sounds like great advice. And so you'll get all 10 tips in the gift from Dr. Cheryl. Dr. Cheryl, thank you so much for making the time to come on the Suicide Prevention Show. I greatly appreciate it. You have such a wealth of knowledge. Thank you. You're very welcome. And I mean, this is just, it's such a wonderful cause. And, and uh, Jackie, I really applaud you for, for taking this, this on. It's such a necessary thing. And even if you just save one life with the work that you're doing, I mean, you've paved your way to heaven. And I am absolutely convinced that you will save many lives with this journey that you're on. Thank you. I am very proud to have been a part of it.